It's 6.15 on a Tuesday morning. It's still dark as I walk to my local market. The sun won't rise for another hour, but the shop owners at West Coast Market Square are already busily preparing for the day. Greengrocers arrange cucumbers, tomatoes, and a dozen green leafy vegetables in appetizing bundles, while fruit stand owners build pyramids of mangosteen, dragon fruit, and rambutan, a sweet fleshy fruit wearing a nightmarish costume. It looks like a blood-red sea urchin whose spikes have wilted in Singapore's equatorial heat. Under the same massive roof are dozens of stalls selling fried noodles, rice porridge, freshly baked bread, and the thick sweetened coffee Singaporeans love. It's a foodie paradise. I've been to this market, one of roughly 100 like it around the country, hundreds of times in the past seven years, but this is the first time I stopped at this particular shop. I usually walk right past it without a glance, but today a tube of toothpaste catches my eye. It looks like the label for Colgate, but it is misspelled C-O-L-G-A-T-S, Colgats. As I stop to examine it, I realize that the tube is empty and made of paper. I look around and notice shoes, cans of beer, table fans, even dentures, all made of paper. Then it hits me. These products are not for the living. I know this because of a paper written by three of my students. Their assignment was to visit a business or institution using the positive connotations of home, things like privacy, domesticity, intimacy, and comfort, to sell a product or an idea. For instance, some groups made a study trip to IKEA, which convinces customers to purchase more by reminding them that, quote, home is the most important place in the world, end quote. But this group did something different. They went to a shop literally selling homes, paper homes for the dead, why do the dead need homes? And how does death complicate the comfort we associate with home? Those questions and more when we continue. I'm Chris McMorrin, a professor at the National University of Singapore, and you're listening to Home on the Dot. This podcast will explore the power and meanings of home in today's world all through the stories and lives of my students. I've returned to my local market with Huijun, Ryan, and Max, former students and collaborators on this podcast. Okay, I just want to test a general conversation around a table like this. We are here to take a closer look at the shop that sells paper houses and to talk with its owner. (laughs) (laughs) 
So according to the shop uncle, stores like these are called Jing Ying Zhi Liao Dian or Shen Liao Dian. Actually, I'm not sure if people really call these stores Jing Ying Zhi Liao Dian. Rather, we call it the incense paper shop or simply the shop we sell things you burn for the day. One of the most common items sold is money. And this money is mostly paper bills in denominations of like 1 million and 5 million dollars. It's a little like going to Indonesia, but the bills are issued by the Bank of Hell. They also sell other items like gold and silver bars, and also countless of other items like beer, iPhones, which are called iPhony, and shavers. All these items are made of paper and would probably go up in flames at some point in time. So the particular store that we visited is approximately like two and a half meters wide and six meters long. But it feels both larger and smaller than these dimensions because the items, they spill out into the corridor in front and along the side which kind of like double the size of the shop itself. Everything is like so tightly packed together that you barely have space to move around. The only space that you have is like this narrow aisle that runs in the middle of this madness. So like the customers, they normally don't enter, they just like stand outside and call out what they want and the owner would know exactly where everything is. The owner is a short, middle-aged man with round glasses and close-cropped salt-and-pepper hair. He wears a tank top, shorts, and flip-flops, what my students call a Chinese uncle's uniform. His smile is a bit mysterious, like he's holding in a joke because he's afraid it will go over my head. He's probably right. We introduce ourselves and ask if he's willing to talk about his shop. This leads to an awkward conversation by my students, who feel embarrassed by their poor Chinese. They all had to pass it in high school, but they've largely forgotten it since because of disuse. Singapore is like that. The younger generation takes university classes in English, and some of them even learn Japanese, Arabic, or Spanish. At the same time, their grandparents may speak one or more dialects of Chinese or even Malay, but little or no English. That is a rapid linguistic change in only two generations. Some things change fast, but other things like this shop don't. It has been operating for 35 years and was first run by the current owner's mother. How long have you had this shop? How many years? He told us that he took over 22 years ago, largely because his lack of education gave him little career choice. His own son and daughter have no interest, and because they receive more education, unlike him, they can choose a different life. Shops like these cater to the living by selling products they will burn to honour the dead. They do so at funerals and on other special occasions like during Qingming or the Hungry Ghost Festival. Of course, he also sells paper houses. When we ask about them, he takes us to the hallway outside the shop where stacks of items are wrapped in plastic. I notice 
you have a paper house. He opens a clear plastic bag to show us this paper mansion, which has like three stories, a circular drive, two luxury cars, a garden, and even a swimming pool. So far, everything. Wow. Got a house, ah, 那个雾气啊。哦，搞一点。With a garden. Inside. Beautiful. Beautiful bedroom. Yeah. Huh? It looks like a toy. As a child, I played with paper dolls, and I can imagine getting hours of enjoyment from this amazing house. But this one is not for play. It's designed to go up and smoke at the funeral of a loved one. I'm particularly drawn to two figures standing at attention. A man in a dark suit and cap stands next to two luxury cars. And a woman on the third-story balcony in a French maid's uniform holds a tray with a cocktail. <laughs> and this, who is this? <laughs> and this, ah, how to say? The maid. Young woman, ah, young woman. Wow, how convenient. <laughs> These are the driver and the maid, who are also burned as an offering for the dead. Both look vaguely Western. I first learned about burning paper houses in a research paper by students in my course called Home. This thing is just introduce yourself. I'm Igang. I'm Amanda. I recently sat down with two of the authors, Igang and Amanda, to discuss their research. So, uh, so what inspired you to write this about this topic? Whose idea was it? Actually, we wanted to come up with a topic that is really unique. So. Because you give us that that platform for us to come up with our own topic, so we wanted to find something that nobody has touched on before. Right. So we were be- we began discussing a lot of things, and so I can't remember how we came up with. I don't with remember this. as well. Yeah, I can't remember. <laughs> just someone or yeah, someone just mentioned this idea of like paper someone. house. Someone. It just came <laughs> from somewhere. Ooh. Yeah. You don't really remember. We can't remember who was the one who s- suggested the idea, right? Yeah, don't but. But we listed a few, but in the end we decided to shortlist that and like give it a try. Cause I think it was nearing seven month at that time. Seventh month? What is that? Ah,、uh, the month where、it's... people buy the houses to burn. So in Singapore, we have this tradition. For me, it's a Chinese tradition whereby seven month means the they call it the Hungry Ghost Festival. So basically, all the relatives that 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 have passed away, they will come back during this seven month. And into this human realm or、mm-hmm. something, and then people will tend to like buy offerings for them in terms of like um money, paper money, paper house and stuff. So uh, so you went in and you looked at these houses, and then you came up with this idea. Like, can you remind me what was the main point of your your paper? Oh no! Oh no!、Uh... <laughs> this is not a test. You have graduated yesterday, so you're fine. <laughs> you're in the clear. <laughs> Uh, something like um, it's not nostalgic. Of course, um, what we have learned, what we have learned from your module is that, um, based on what Macy has told us, that um, home does not have to be a place of nostalgia. Igang is talking about Doreen Massey, one of the most prolific and influential geographers of the past forty years. Massey wrote a lot about home, especially in the context of globalization. 
In particular, she wondered why so many scholars in the 1980s and 90s felt that global economic and cultural change was threatening their sense of home. She asked, wasn't home always a work in progress, an ever-changing set of relations with people, ideas, and objects stretched out over space? Space concerns our relations with each other. And in fact, social space, I would say, is a product of our relations with each other, our connections with each other. For Massey, people who claim to be losing their sense of home tend to be looking backward to an idea of home that resists change, especially regarding the roles of men and women. She calls this a nostalgic sense of home which is usually the privileged perspective of a man who freely travels to and from home. And when he is home, he enjoys the comforts provided by a woman, usually his wife or mother, who is more likely to feel stuck there or see it as a continual labor of love and not just a place to relax. So globalization, for instance, is a new geography constructed out of the relations we have with each other across the globe. For Massey, coming to grips with globalization requires changing how we think about home itself. If we conceptualize home as progressive and future-oriented, we can begin to work toward making something better, instead of resisting change and trying to turn back the clock. Egong, Amanda, and Stella pick up Massey's idea and point out that these burnable homes are not nostalgic representations of places people used to live in. Instead, they're what they call, quote, aspirational homes. So tell me, do you guys have any personal experiences burning houses for the dead? I had the experience once. I don't know. I, I don't. Oh. I don't. Yeah, so basically my cousin passed away. And then we held this um, Chinese um, like um, ritual for her. So basically what they did was they bought like paper house and paper car. And then they burn it in a, in a garage. Or mm-hmm. something, yeah. So they burn it for her, hoping that um after she passed on, she will at least have a house to stay in and not wander around in in the room, yeah. And and she will be better off after she's um in the afterlife, lah. Yeah. So that was the idea behind this in terms of burning of um items for their loved ones. Yeah. yeah. And you have no experience with it. I uh, know. So it was totally new to you. As in, I knew of the practice. Like, usually on TV, when they were... <laughs> the Chinese TV. China 8 or yeah, what. Eight. Yeah, some dramas they will show. Yeah. And they'll show them burning these houses yeah. too? Mm. Yeah. Okay, I should watch more local TV. <laughs> right. I, guess. I think these students did great work, and I still recall my excitement during their presentation in class. I sat mesmerized by their photographs of elaborate paper houses with paper gardens, paper furniture, and paper iPads. Everything the deceased would need for a happy afterlife. Something about death. And uh, the inspiration was your paper on paper houses. I mean, I think you remember my eyes when you were giving the presentation. I was like, what? Is this a thing? I didn't know this was a thing. And you're probably looking at me like, yeah, everyone knows this. (laughs) So boring. What can I say? Sometimes students have to point out things right under your nose. Earlier this year, I attended my first wake in Singapore. 
After a colleague's father died, his family invited people to help them honor him. We burned joss sticks and tried to help in some way with our presence. Standing in front of the casket was a massive paper house two meters wide and at least a meter tall. Unlike the one we saw in the shop, this one was two-dimensional, but it had the same level of detail, with four stories, windows that opened onto fully furnished rooms, servants, and useful household electronics, a flat-screen TV, a laptop. My students were perceptive in pointing out the aspirational aspect of these burnable homes, but I still wonder, why are they so extravagant? Is this a new phenomenon? In order to learn more about the practice of burning houses to honor the dead, I sat down with Dr. Richard Lee. <laughs> just just name and, uh, uh, and position. Yeah. Uh, Richard Lee from the Department of Chinese Studies and U.S. <laughs> He's an associate professor of Chinese studies at the National University of Singapore and an expert on Chinese history and culture. So, um, yeah, how long have you been uh, working on or interested in funeral rites? Well, and... uh more than 10 years because, uh, well, at one stage I'm very interested in um, funeral rites. Mm -hmm. So I follow some of the Taoist priests so to observe uh, how they conduct funeral rites. Right. And um, because of uh, my interest in Chinese culture, so funeral offerings are part of the funeral rites. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, getting to the topic of paper houses, mm. I mean, I, I realize there are other things that yeah. can be burned. Yep. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, what, what should be burned and how do you decide? How okay. does someone decide? In fact, if you talk about paper houses, it can be traced back to more than 2,000 years ago in Chinese culture. Because it's part of the Confucian philopiety that you bury with your deceased uh, uh, family members items they use uh, when they were still alive, or uh, imitated items, uh, the house they leave, the farmhouse, the stove. So that's why in archaeological finding, there are lots of this kind of clay houses, domestic animals we find in uh, tombs and also in uh, ancient Chinese uh, graveyards. So all this, in fact, uh, is part of the ancient Chinese funeral rites, part of the Confucian funeral rituals. Mm -hmm. So that was about 2,005 years from now. Right. But gradually, uh, when paper became uh, commonly used in China, so from uh, historical writing, we discovered that starting roughly around from the Song Dynasty in China, around 11th century, Chinese started to use paper <laughs> to build houses, statues, figures, servants. Instead of ceramics. Instead of ceramics, yeah, okay. instead of clay. Instead in of olden clay. days, it's clay. Clay. The Han Dynasty. Mm -hmm. Then down to the Tang Dynasty, they used ceramic mm -hmm. because the uh, emergence of ceramics was much yeah. later. Mm -hmm. So. But this kind of item, even clay or ceramics, became more expensive. Not the common people may not be able to afford it. And paper become uh, commonly used mm -hmm. and it's very cheap. Mm -hmm. And also influenced by Taoist and Buddhist religion. Mm -hmm.
that burning the items will be able to send to another world. In other words, miniature houses have been used in Chinese funerals for over 2,000 years. But over time, the custom gradually changed. Not only did the materials change, from clay to ceramic, then to paper, but also the meaning changed when the custom intersected with Buddhism and Taoism, both of which believe in an afterlife. And so, as it's practiced today yeah. in Singapore, yeah. is that why people burn houses and servants and money and credit cards and passports yes. and iPhones? Yes. Yes. They, be well, they believe that the, their loved one will use this and... Yeah. Well, we can classify this kind of uh, action into two groups. One is related to their religious belief. Mm -hmm. Some are Buddhists, some are Taoists, and they believe in afterlife. So they also believe that uh, when they burn this kind of thing, uh, it can be used in, in another world, in the, in the next life. So this is one group of people with religious belief. Another group, they just follow the Chinese tradition. Mm -hmm. So it is custom of the Chinese people when you go to uh, tomb cleaning during the Qingming festival, you bring along food, you also burn joystick, paper money. So this is just a, a custom practice mm -hmm. rather than a religious belief. So, so what is the purpose of burning it if it can't be used in the next... No, it's it, it, it just, for example, you burn a house, mm -hmm. you burn the notes, paper money, that means you, you, you want the deceased person to have something familiar, to be buried together with the person. So that's why in olden days you use oh, clay house, porcelain, or even domestic animals to bury together with the deceased person. So, but during that time in olden days, when we look at the findings of the Han Dynasty, usually the house will be resemble the house of the deceased person could have lived there for, for probably during his whole life. It may be tempting today to think that burning an extravagant mansion is new, something influenced by globalization and exposure to Western ideas. Sure, the design of the house may have changed in recent years, but in fact, burning an aspirational home has a much longer and complicated history. So when do we see the change to something more aspirational? I think it's, it's a big influence by religious belief. Religious belief in that, oh, you have a good life in your, in your next life. Mm -hmm. So you try to provide more than enough. So, mm -hmm. so you have credit card, that's the bank look will be uh, $10 million for one piece. So the house will be bigger. You try to burn a paper servants to serve the person so, so that he has a better life in the next life. Mm -hmm. So that is religious, related to religious belief. Right. The practice of burning houses is not necessarily a superstition. It is part of Chinese custom linked to Confucianism and filial piety, honoring your elders by giving them what you can. Even today, my students carry on this tradition. Once they graduate and begin working, they give part of their income to their parents and grandparents. It doesn't have to be much, maybe $100 a month to a grandmother, but it is not optional. Once a loved one passes away, such offerings continue for many people, this time in the form of paper money burned both at the funeral and occasions like the annual Hungry Ghost Festival. This is when shops like the one in my local market do most of their business.
As architectural trends and funeral practices continue to evolve, I'm left wondering how the tradition of burning houses might change. Will Singaporeans continue to burn paper houses to show their filial piety? Will they use these houses to try to provide their loved ones with all the comforts of home in the afterlife? Will paper houses become even more extravagant, reflecting the growing aspirations of Singaporeans? I have Amanda, Egong, and Stella to thank for opening my eyes to this phenomenon, which will keep me thinking about the intersection of home and death for years. I want to conclude this episode by talking about another intersection of death and home, the fact that home is the place most of us want to die. According to a recent article in the Straits Times newspaper, around 75% of Singaporeans have this wish. However, 60% actually die in hospitals. The reasons for wanting to die at home are clear. Although hospitals and nursing homes may try to create a comfortable atmosphere, most of us consider them cold. They can never replace the feeling of home. In our final days, all we want to do is to go peacefully, surrounded by those we love in a space where we feel comfortable. But what of those left behind? Ten years ago, my father was diagnosed with cancer. Despite surgery, chemotherapy, and an apparent full recovery, doctors suddenly found cancer in his lymph nodes and elsewhere. They declared him beyond repair. And he spent his final month in a series of hospitals and ever-increasing pain. When he was finally recommended for hospice, in November 2007, I cut short by a few months my PhD research in Japan, and my wife and I moved back to the U.S. the following day. I hadn't seen my father in about six months. He was barely recognizable, his lean muscular frame suddenly skeletal. The man who had suffered broken arms and multiple knee surgeries without shedding a tear or showing any obvious pain now pled for morphine and he begged to go home. He wanted to look out the big windows of the house he almost completely rebuilt with his own hands, to watch deer grazing in the south meadow, and mostly to touch his beloved golden retriever, Maddie. We all wanted that for him, but it was impossible, given the combination of his need for morphine to ease the pain and one of the worst ice storms to hit southwest Iowa in decades. We were stuck in the hospital, all of us feeling helpless, but trying to make the most of our final days with the strong, silent man we loved so much. I still wish Dad could have died at home, but now I wonder how that would have altered that two-story farmhouse for me and especially my mom. If Dad had died at home, what would it feel like to return there? Would those painful final weeks displace all the happier, Memories of putting up Christmas lights that could be seen for miles, or drinking beer on the patio after a hard day's work. In preparing for this episode, I reached out to my mom, admitting that I'm still haunted by the fact that we couldn't give Dad the death he wanted. Through muffled tears, she assured me we did the best we could. In the years since his death, and partly because of the excellent care we all received during that ordeal, Mom began working part-time for a hospice provider. When I told her the premise for this part of the episode today, 
She said she completely understood. In fact, she had worked with many families who had welcomed hospice workers into their homes in order to provide their loved ones a more comfortable passing, only to later struggle to recover the home as a space for the living. After the death, she said, quote, it's hard for some people to go home. As for mom, she sold the house soon after dad died. It was too big for her to care for and too far from town. I take some comfort in the fact that she's also free from living in a space haunted by so many memories, both happy and sad. When a loved one dies in a hospital, we can walk away. But when they die at home, we continue to live with that memory. I guess what I'm still wondering is, what are we wishing upon our loved ones when we ask to die at home? This episode of Home on the Dot was written and produced by Tong Huijun, Chan Wenking, and me. Our sound engineer was Ryan Ong. Thanks to Chua Yigong, Amanda Ong, and Stella Pear for the paper that inspired this episode, as well as Richard Lee for sharing his knowledge of Chinese funeral practices. You can learn more about this episode, including the related scholarship photographs of burnable houses, and some 360-degree video from my local market by visiting blog.nus.edu.sg backslash home on the dot.